We're going to skip a couple of chapters. We're going to skip the part about Mystery Babylon, and we're going to go into the Messianic Kingdom, which is the first part of chapter 20 of Revelation. But let's go to the Lord and, and continue from there. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the books of the Bible, but thank you for the book of Revelations that you say is a blessing to those who read it and do it. And thank you that it's a simple book that you've written to ordinary people, a simple message that is to uh, follow you no matter what is going on in the world, in our lives. And thank you for the millennial kingdom that you promised that uh, where you're going to set everything right and rule over this world in justice and truth. And we just thank you for your holy son. In his name we pray. Amen. So in Revelations chapter 20, verse 2 through 7, we come to the description of the millennial kingdom, as most Christians call it. Jews call it the messianic age. And we'll just dig right into the text. It says, And he laid hold of that of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mar his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. We can see that during this time, Satan's gonna be locked up in the bottomless pit. He's going to be released at the end of the thousand years. And the purpose was for him not to deceive the nations during this period. I mean, we're going to go into a lot of details about what this period is going to look like. I always contemplated why John only wrote these five verses about the, a thousand-year period while he spent, <clears throat> what is it, 18 chapters on a seven-year period. And the only conclusion I can come to is that he would, have, he would have assumed that his readers were well familiar with the Old Testament to the degree that there's scores and scores of chapters in the Old Testament that are dedicated to this period of time. The Messianic era, the, the Millennial Kingdom, there's lots of prophecies all over the Bible, but specifically in the Old Testament, where God promises Israel this age of peace where the nations will be subdued and the king will be reigning from Jerusalem. And we know that God's faithful to all of his promises. There's so many prophecies about it that haven't come true, which is everlasting peace brought in, uh, end of sin, the king reigning on the physically on the throne of his father David. And these things we haven't seen yet. And so while Jesus did usher in a spiritual kingdom at the time of his resurrection, the literal kingdom has not come to fruition just yet. God's promises to Israel have to be true still and that he will redeem the Jewish people at, at a point of his choosing. And then even in 1948, when the Jews started returning to the land, and even before that, I think large swaths of Christianity began to realize, you know, there might be something to this regathering of Israel back into the land. So I like interjecting Jewish perspectives into some of this, especially 
in this topic because the Messianic era is one of the most widely discussed topics in, in Jewish literature for the last 3,000 years. You know, when Jesus first came, the Jews were immediately fixated on the millennial kingdom reign of the Messiah. The suffering servant side, they had an understanding of, but uh, it wasn't what they were focused on, primarily because the Old Testament talks about the first coming of Christ, as well as the time of the Gentiles, really allegorically and hidden. But the Messianic era is written on the surface level of the Old Testament, and so they were very familiar with those prophecies, but a little bit less familiar with uh, this time of the Gentiles that was going to have to happen, the death of the Messiah, even though the death of the Messiah was foretold, but they were fixated on, on this millennial kingdom reign. So there's three terms. We have Olam Haze, which means this world, which is the world prior to the millennial kingdom. And then we have the days of the, of the Messiah, which is the millennial kingdom. And then we have the world to come, which Revelation describes as the New Jerusalem. And those happen in succession. And we see in Acts chapter 1, the, even the disciples were still thinking about this millennial kingdom reign. And they, they come to the resurrected Jesus and they ask him, well, they say, therefore, when they come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. He didn't say, no, that's my promises to Israel are done away with. I'm going to go with this new bunch of people and, and, and make promises to them. He's saying, no, but the time is not ready yet. There's, there needs to be a time for the grafting in of Gentiles and for Gentiles to believe in the God of Israel, which has been the time that we're in. I like this quote by, one, by a rabbi, Rabbi Yahov in the Mishnah. He says, one should view the relationship of this world or the Olam Hazeh to the Olam Haba, the world to come, as that of an anteroom or an entrance to a palace. Prepare yourself in the palace so that you will be admitted. Prepare yourself in the interest, entrance so that you will be admitted to the palace. And I take that kind of what Tim has been talking about, about this, uh, the overcomer idea, you know. We need to, to realize that our salvation is secure through faith, but there's a concept of the reward that we get as we become overcomers. And so that's the preparation that we're doing in this life to rule and reign with him. I find it interesting also in the Midrash, it says 6,000 years for going in and coming out for war and for peace. The seventh millennium is entirely the Sabbath and the days of the Messiah. And it's ironic, I, I always, it blows my mind how Jews interpret the Old Testament, but they, they get this actually from the very first verse of the Bible, that, that statement. There's seven words in it, and, and then, of course, they extrapolate that to the seven days of creation. There is a Jewish tradition that maintains that each of the seven days of the week, which are based on the seven days of creation, correspond to the seven millennia of creation. This tradition teaches that the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day of rest, corresponds to the seventh millennium, the age of universal rest, the Messianic era. The seventh millennium begins with the year 6,000. And then according to th their tradition, it's the latest time that Messiah can come. And this is talked about all throughout uh, Jewish literature by early and late Jewish scholars, even up to the, the era of the, of the Pharisees and Ezra. So right now we're in the year 5776 in the Jewish calendar, and it, it counts from Adam. Now, Adam was created on the sixth day, and so they don't speculate on the, the prior days of creation. And some rabbis say that those days were longer periods of time. Others say 24-hour periods, but the, so they count from the sixth day on. But the rabbis admit this is give or take 300 years, roughly, and there's been a lot of speculation about what happened with these missing years. When they first created this uh, calculation, they, they used this 490-year prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, 
which is the the, the weeks of years, you know. And so they worked backwards from the destruction of the second temple, and, uh, and they calculate in Anno Mundi, which is uh, since creation or after creation, but they wrongly dated the destruction of the first temple, and so that's where they say this 300-year missing thing has is, is happened. So just to try to illustrate some of this, Noah was a thousand years after Adam, Abraham a thousand after Noah, David, and then Jesus, and then the Crusades, and then today. So you can see that uh, from Adam, you know, this is, we're real close to the end of the sixth day if you wanted to look at a thousand years as a day. And as, like I said, as the Jews calculated, it would be at 5776, but that's give or take. And I'm not trying to put any calculations out there saying this is when the Millennium Kingdom is going to start. I'm just trying to show you that so far it follows this seven-day pattern. So the last 2,000 years is what I would call the time of the nations or the time of the Gentiles. It's a time where Israel is, is subjugated to the empires of the world and dispersed among them. But as the disciples said, they said, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Well, during that seventh millennium is when the kingdom is restored to Israel and all nations will actually be paying homage to Jesus in Jerusalem. And we'll go through a lot of the verses, but one of them is really cool. It says that at that time, 10 men out of all the languages of the earth will grab the tzitzit, the, friend, the tassel of a Jew and say, let us go with you for we heard that God is with you. It'll be an interesting, pretty cool time, but I'm going to let scripture largely speak for itself. None of the, the actual prophecies of the millennial kingdom have come to pass yet. You know, we haven't came into a, an era of everlasting peace and where Satan's bound. And so, and also, you know, I believe God's faithful. That's one of his main attributes. And if he said it to the Jewish people through the prophet, I think that he'll definitely fulfill it because he's a faithful God. He doesn't go back on his word. I think this is a really neat verse that prophesies in Hosea that Israel is to be subjugated to and dispersed among the Gentiles for two days. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 and 2 it says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. And so I take this as 2,000 years for a day. With Jesus, he was in the grave for two days and then resurrected the third. But it appears that through this prophecy that it's the same thing happens to Israel as well. Before I go on to some of the next slides, I wanted to give you kind of an idea of how Paul and Jesus interprets the Old Testament. You know, when we read the Old Testament a lot, especially Numbers and, and the Exodus, we just see a bunch of guys wandering around and we look at it completely literally, which the literal interpretation of the text is the most important. But there are layers that are, can be interpreted as typology, they call it, where it's pointing to something that the Messiah is going to do or that God will do in, in a later date. So in Matthew 24, it says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In John 3.14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn or the grain, and the labor is worth its wages. So, you know, when we would read, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, if you took that 
completely literally, literally it not only applies to, to farmers and, and people who are treading corn, but Paul interprets that to mean people, you know, because at one point he says, does God really care this much for oxen or is it uh, people that he's talking about here? So I found this really cool image. You know, this is the image from Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we see the head of gold, the chest of silver, the waist of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron mixed with clay. And at different points through history, these nations were separated because of the Tower of Babel. They were divided. But the statue is still one statue. And so there's times at which the nations will come together. And we'll talk about that in further detail. That big fireball you see coming out is at the end of his dream, he sees a stone that's cut out of a mountain and it's tossed at the image and it smashes it into pieces. And then the stone fills up the whole earth, which is the messianic era, the millennial kingdom. So in uh, Psalms chapter two, we get a really neat prophecy. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that word in Hebrew for his anointed is Messiah and his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And so this is against the Lord and his anointed. And then I put the verse about the Tower of Babel in there. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. This is God talking. That they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. What's interesting, and it's kind of hidden in the English, so the Hebrew word for Babel is Babel. But if you fast forward to Daniel, you'll see that it doesn't say Babylon there. It's it's still Babel. It's still the same word as Babel, but we write it in English as Babylon because we know that there was an empire of Babylon during that time. But I think that kind of hides the link between the Tower of Babel and the Chaldean Babylon that we know so much about. And it also brings a link to the mystery Babylon that's prophesied in in Revelation that's going to come. So it's going to be after the similitude of Babel, this gathering of the nations united. Now, I was working for a Spanish TV station this week and a lot of the people that work there don't speak any English and so I get out my phone and I speak English into it and then I say translate and it reads it back, speaks it back to them in Spanish. God used the confusion of languages in order to separate the nation so that they wouldn't come together with one mind and be one statue as we see here with all the nations is working together as one. It was God's intention to confuse the languages, scatter them abroad and then they, they wouldn't be able to do this. Well, I think we're coming into a time in the information age where man is actually trying to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel so the nations can come together in globalism and it'll be just like the Tower of Babel again and maybe this mystery Babylon will come out of that. Now we do have a prophecy I'll show in a subsequent slide that says that God's going to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel himself in the millennial kingdom return to the nations of pure language so that they will call upon his name with one accord it says. So God's intention is to do that, but he can't do that while Satan's out tempting the nations because he knows that if the nations were, were to come together in that fashion, which they will in, in the, the end times, it's going to be disastrous once again. I wanted to make a link between the word waters and nations. 
In Revelation 17:15, the angel says to John, And he said unto me, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. So here we get a glimpse of an allegorical way to read this word waters. I mean, I really think it's pretty neat because going to Noah, we can look at the story of Noah allegorically. And I think a lot of these stories in the Bible, especially in the Torah, are prophecies. They're not just literal stories. They are literal stories, but they're prophecies about something in the future. So in, in Genesis 7, it says, Now the flood was on the earth 40 days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark. And I would say the ark kind of represents the Messiah or the Messianic kingdom. The waters represent the nations. And it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed greatly and increased on the earth. And the ark moved on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the whole earth. And all the high hills were under the whole heaven were covered. And so there's going to be a time of the nations just prevailing over the whole face of the earth. And then we go to Genesis 8, and it says, And God remembered Noah and all the living things and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. And the fountains of the deeps of, of the window, and the windows of heavens were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded or were abated. The nations were abated, as you can kind of read it, that into it, from, continually from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. And then the ark rested in the seventh month, in the 17th day of the month, on, on the mountain of Ararat. Which I think is kind of cool because Jesus comes down to the Mount of Olives, you know, at that moment. But it's interesting that it gives us the month and the day of when the ark came to rest. I did a class on the Lord's appointed times or the feasts of Israel. And each feast is actually a prophecy about something that the Messiah will do. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus, in my opinion. And the Sabbath is the millennial kingdom rest. And we'll go to Hebrews chapter 4 in a little bit and see how the writers of Hebrew link the Sabbath day to the millennial kingdom rest. The spring feast, Passover, was a rehearsal for the death of the Messiah. First fruits, which comes right after it, the resurrection. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was the Holy Spirit writing the law in our hearts. And then there's a, the summertime where there is no feast. It's, it's almost like the time of the Gentiles, if you will. And then the fall feasts uh, represent his second coming. The Feast of Trumpets is the resurrection of the dead and the coronation of Messiah. Yom Kippur is the second coming of Christ with his foot touching on Mount of Olives. And the Feast of Tabernacles is Messiah's second advent to dwell with humanity for a thousand years. And so all these feasts are rehearsals. In fact, the Hebrew word in Leviticus 23, when it says that the Lord's appointed times, it uses the word mikra, which is a rehearsal. In English, a lot of times it says a holy convocation. And to me, I just, I never use the word convocation in my speech. So I looked it up and, and rehearsal is a valid interpretation of that. So now we're going to start going through some of these Old Testament passages I was mentioning. And, it, and this is only a fraction of them, but John the Revelator would have assumed that his readers were familiar with all this that's why he only spent six verses or five verses on a thousand year period but was uh, led to flush out a seven year period among a lot greater of text so in Isaiah 2 1 through 5 it says the word that, that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem now it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Adonai shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills and the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of Adonai, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between nations and rebuke many people. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hook and nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore so we definitely haven't seen any of this happen yet you know lots of war lots of stuff happening we don't see the nations flowing to jerusalem i love that word flow i can just imagine lines of people just you know and and just all nations going to Jerusalem to, to worship the king. This is ironic that uh, Micah chapter 4 says the exact same thing, almost word for word. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Adonai shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, let, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Adonai to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares. And he adds this cool statement. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts or Adonai Sevaot um, has spoken it. And so when I see two separate prophets, Micah and Isaiah, prophesying nearly an identical same thing. Anytime that something's doubled in the Hebrew, it, it's a surety. It's like an exclamation, exclamation on the end of it, you know. So, so now we're going to skip to Zechariah. Now I know you know Zechariah is a post-exilic book or prophet. And so he would have been after the Jews returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it says, In that day living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. That's the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Both in the summer and winter it shall occur. And Adonai shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be that Adonai is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up, like the elevation of it, and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate from the tower of Hanael to the king's winepress. We see that there's going to be geographical changes that happen in the millennial kingdom. Things are going to, tectonic plates are going to move, things are going to happen. The temple mount as it exists could not situate Ezekiel's temple on it as it exists today. And so there's going to have to be large changes in the geography of Israel and perhaps the whole world and that will facilitate that. So in Psalms, David gives a prophecy about this time frame as well. He says, Adonai has sworn in truth to David. And Adonai just means the Lord. And so it's actually a substitution for the word Yahweh. Has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore for Adonai has chosen Zion he has desired it for his dwelling place this is my resting place forever here I will dwell for I have desired it I will abundantly bless her provision I will satisfy her poor with bread I will also clothe her priests with salvation her saints shall shout aloud for joy and there I will make the horn of David to grow and I will prepare a lamp for my Messiah his enemies I will clothe with shame but upon himself his crown shall flourish. So this is another prophecy of God to David that he will have a descendant ultimately reigning upon the throne forever. He did for, you know, about, what would it be, about a 600-year period 
there was always a king of son of David on the king of, of, of Judah, but then Judah was decimated. Even in the second, second temple period, Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't from the line of David, so that doesn't count. But ultimately in the millennial kingdom, we know that Messiah, Christ, Jesus, the son of, son of David, will r- rule and reign there for a thousand years. And it shall come to Zechariah 14, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth that do not come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. And they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to Adonai shall be engraved on all the bells of the horses, and the pots in the house of Adonai shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And in that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. I want to comment on that last verse because I'm going to go to Isaiah 56 soon. There's also a prophecy that during the millennial kingdom that certain Gentiles will be allowed to make sacrifices on the altar. And that hasn't happened yet. Even in the second temple period with Herod, there was a big sign right there that said Gentiles don't even get to come in here. In fact, that's why Paul circumcised Timothy, I I believe, because his mom was Jewish, number one. But he wanted him to be able to go to the temple, and without being circumcised, Timothy wouldn't have been, have been able to. So it wasn't a salvation issue or anything that Timothy was taking on. Now, before I get into Ezekiel, I wanted to give you a little bit of time frame from Ezekiel 36 to the end of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 are prophecies about the regathering of Jews into the land of Israel. It's the dry bones prophecy in 37 that says, I will put flesh on you and bring you back to the mountains of Israel and you will come to your own land. And then Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the war of Gog and Magog or Armageddon where the Jews are back in the land, the nations are raging and and they become unified again and they come against Israel for battle. And in fact, it says the Lord puts hooks in their jaws and drags them there almost, you know, because the Lord wants this to happen. Then in Ezekiel 40 through the end of the book, it's all the Messianic era. If you read through those chapters, you can kind of get a timeline. And I, I think it's highly chronological, at least from 36 to the end of Ezekiel. And so Jesus is called the prince in Ezekiel 40 through the end. We'll read a couple of these. And it says... In Ezekiel 44, 1 through 3, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces towards the east, but it was shut. And Adonai said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because Adonai, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall, not, it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gateway, and shall go out by the same way. So we see that this prince is given special privileges that even though no one else on earth can go through this gate because the Lord has gone through it, this prince can sit in it. And of course, every gate in ancient societies had a place for the leader to sit and make judgments. And that was like city hall, you know, and they would always make judgments there. We see that with Boaz and, and Ruth and stuff like that. So it's almost like he's sitting there for judgment. And it says to eat bread, that may be allegorical. So in Ezekiel 40, just a few verses later, it says, now say to the rebellious 
to the house of Israel. Thus says Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, of the house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it. My house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, and they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy thing, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. I've debated a lot with this verse. You know, it says uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh. At the end of Esther, it says that many of the nations became Jews for the fear of the Jews came on them. And so I don't know if that's what it's talking about, but we know that our blessing as far as faith in God and the receiving of the Holy Spirit is circumcising our hearts you know, which is the most important circumcision, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 2. So in 45, we, we always discuss a lot that there will be sacrifices reinstituted in the millennial kingdom, and we wonder, why would that happen? You know, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. The best I can say is that because this is no longer the time of the Gentiles, and it's the time of Israel, and God's promises to Israel is that they would have their uh, kingdom, and that the Torah would be the law of the land, and in the Torah they have sacrifices instituted. But it's important to think of what the sacrifices point to. Uh, we know from Hebrews that they all pointed to Jesus' sacrifice. And so it says in Ezekiel 45, 17, then it shall be the prince's part, not the priest for some reason, but the prince's part to give burnt offerings, the grain offerings and the drink offerings at the feasts and the new moons and the Sabbaths and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering even, the grain offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So this is an interesting time where there's not a, necessarily a high priest, but Jesus is a high priest. But he's, for some reason, he's given the title of prince in Ezekiel. I think this is more about the geographical changes. And then he said to me, he's talking to Ezekiel, son of Adam, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned there along the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the valley and enters the sea, the Dead Sea. And when it reaches the Dead Sea, the, its waters are healed. And, that, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters will go there for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. And it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Englaim, and they will be places for spreading their nets. But their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. You know, I've been to Engedi and to the Dead Sea, and I think it was 33% salt, which is 10 times saltier than any ocean as it exists right now. But this river that's going to proceed out of Jerusalem in that era is going to heal it. Um, Ezekiel 47, 21. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves. This is after uh, the Jews are in the land. Armageddon has happened and now the Messiah is ruling and reigning. Thus you shall divide this land, the land of Israel, among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. So there's going to be Gentiles who live in the land of Israel during this era who are going to be considered native born Israelites. They shall have an inheritance among you and among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, 
that you shall give him his inheritance there, says the Lord God. So that's an interesting concept, and we'll go to it a little bit more in this next uh, next slide. Um, and so the, I think this is the last verse of Ezekiel 48:35. It says, And all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be Adonai Shema, which means the Lord is there. And that will be the new name of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a really cool Messianic uh, era prophecy that Jeremiah was given in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor there shall be lacking, says Adonai. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, Adonai Tzikenu, the Lord our righteousness. I find it interesting, he's going to set up shepherds over Israel. And it reminds me of the verse in, where Jesus tells his disciples that you will be given a judgment over the twelve tribes of Israel during the kingdom. And so that's what comes to my mind during that. Here's the verse I was mentioning in Zephaniah 3.9. It says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. God does intend to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel, but if he does it before Satan's locked up for a thousand years and able to deceive the nations, then it's going to become a Babel again. But man has been striving for long periods of time. The Rosetta Stone, you know, had three or three or four languages side by side so they could be translation. We always saw the beneficialness of having a translator, but with Google Translate and things today, I mean, that line is getting thinner and thinner between the nations but it's a man-made attempt to reverse the curse so uh, this is the one I was talking about about the strangers who dwell among Israel it says in Isaiah 56 6 through 8 also the sons of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to serve him to love the name of the Lord to be his servants everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So this is a prophecy of this time of the Gentiles period where you can be a Gentile who has faith in the Messiah, the Son of God, and you're grafted. In Ephesians 2 it says, you who were once Gentiles in the flesh, yet you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but now have been brought near. It's one of those, I think Mark calls it the gifts of grace, that we were once Gentiles, aliens from all of these covenants of promise, and yet God had pity not only on his people, the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and has given us a period of time to believe in him and, and be saved. I think that's awesome. This is a real popular Messianic era verse in Isaiah 11. And here Jesus is called the branch again. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow forth out of its roots. The spirit of Adonai shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Adonai. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. A cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. And we see this term resting place, this enter the rest and come up quite a bit. So Isaiah 66, the last chapter in Isaiah, it says, And they shall bring all of your brethren, the Jews, for an offering out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of Adonai, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites. And it says, they shall bring all of your brethren. So I think after Armageddon, there's still going to be some Jews that never made Aliyah back to the land of Israel. And at that moment, the Gentiles are going to carry them all back to Jerusalem. And there'll be, I'm sure, pomp and circumstance and just, just a celebration. Here's that verse in Zechariah 8.23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the Gentiles shall grasp the tassel of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we heard that God is with you. I think it's really beneficial to link the term Sabbath, rest, land of Israel, messianic kingdom, and seventh day. So in Numbers 14, it says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses, he's talking to the children of Israel in the wilderness. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and upward, Except for Caleb, the son of Jephani, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. So he says the land right there. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore to you. Now let's see the way David says it in Psalms 95. It says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me. They, though they saw my work, 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So you see, my rest and the land of Israel are the same. Jews use a, a concept called circumlocution. It's uh, purposefully substituting terms, not to be vague, but to maybe even bring out a, a deeper meaning of, of the term. So they often use that uh, circumlocution. So we see that J Caleb and Joshua were the overcomers, and they were the only ones 20 years old and older who merited entering the rest. And why do they merit it? Because of faith. When they came back, uh, they were part of the 12 spies. They weren't shaken in their boots because they saw their enemies as greater than them. They knew how great their God was, and they had a pure and unadulterated faith in him. And that's why they merited entering the land. So in Hebrews 4, 
we see the writer of Hebrews definitely linking all of these terms together. It says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. That means it was preached to us and to the children of Israel in the wilderness, saying, You believe in God, have faith, I'll give and let you enter my rest. That was the good news that they heard. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, he quotes Psalms, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and to those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a different day, a certain day in David, saying, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation in the wilderness. For if Joshua, son of Nun, had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day to come. Therefore remains another day of rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall short according to the same example of disobedience. I really love this, this chapter right here because he's linking the rest that was promised to the Israelites and the, the kingdom that they set up through David. I've heard it even said that if the Jews would have accepted Jesus in the first advent, that possibly the millennial kingdom would have started then. That wasn't God's intention, though, so he blinded his people to give the Gentiles a time to believe, is the way I see it. It's interesting, if you read this section of scripture in the old King James Version, it says, for if Jesus had given them rest, then it would not have spoken of another day to come. And the reason is because Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. And so the translators of the old King James in 1611 just went through, and every time it said Iesus, they just put Jesus, instead of looking at the context and said, well, that's actually Joshua in the Old Testament. But <laughs> I've found this cool graphic of people flowing to Jerusalem, to the temple. And I put up these last two verses here. In Psalm 48, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And Jesus actually alludes to this Old Testament passage by saying, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And he's speaking of himself, the great king. And so I think that's really awesome.